There are a lot of cops in the news and in the courtroom these days. What's going on with St. Louis police officers? There's some blatant mis police misconduct in this case. That is not something you can just do in anger and get away with it. 99.9% of all police officers are good public servants. When you're talking about power and control, it can come out in several different ways. And so police brutality is one of the ways and sexual assault is another way. It seems like we have an awful lot of these few bad apples. I'm Sarah Fenske, and today's Legal Roundtable dug into some cases involving cops behaving badly. We started off by discussing a trial that's been underway at the federal courthouse in recent weeks. One current and two former St. Louis Metropolitan Police officers are charged with beating a man they thought was a protester, but was really a colleague working undercover. Luther Hall has since left the St. Louis police force. That night, he suffered serious injuries. That includes a concussion, a ruptured gallbladder, and a hole in his lip so big a medic could fit his pinky through it. He needed spinal surgery and months of physical therapy. Now jurors must decide if Hall's former colleagues are guilty. They face charges that include deprivation of rights under color of law, destruction of evidence, and lying to the FBI. The officers are white. The colleagues they beat, Luther Hall, is black. And the jury was originally impaneled as an all-white group. That left a lot of observers wondering how that was possible in the year 2021. Our legal roundtable was ready for the challenge of explaining it. And this month, that includes Bill Freivogel. He's an attorney and professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Bill, welcome. Hi. And we're also joined by Eric Banks. He's a former city councilor and state's attorney now practicing at Banks Law, LLC. Eric, welcome. Thanks, Sarah. And last but not least, we're joined by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor now in private practice at Gorofsky Law. Nicole, welcome. Good afternoon. Nicole, I want to start with you. So I should say first, we no longer have an all-white jury in this case. One juror had to leave for family or medical reasons, and a black woman was plucked from the alternate pool and has now taken her place. But an all-white jury was originally impaneled and sat on this case for more than a week. And that came after defense attorneys struck several black jurors from the pool. I guess the big question is, how can they do that? Is that legal? I think first an interesting thing to know is that this is a federal case. So even though it happened in the city of St. Louis, it is a federal uh, uh, criminal suit. So what that means is instead of drawing the jury pool directly from the city of St. Louis only, the jury pool is drawn from the entire eastern half of the state. And so you can see already right from that that the jury pool is probably going to be less diverse than it would be if it only drew from the city of St. Louis. Mm -hmm. So then what happened was you have this jury pool that is already less diverse. And then um, what happened is uh, the defense uh, attorneys struck some jurors who um, were uh, black. And so what happened was the prosecutor made a Batson challenge. And what that means is there's a Supreme Court precedent under Batson versus Kentucky. And what it says is that when uh, an attorney on either side strikes a juror who uh, is of a certain race, the other side can challenge that strike and ask that attorney for a uh, 
a race neutral or it could be gender, could be based on gender, a race or gender neutral reason to, for that strike. And then that attorney has to give an explanation for why that sh they're striking that juror. And then the judge gets to decide if that reason is actually race neutral or gender neutral, depending on what the claim is. So in this case, there was a Batson challenge. Um, the judge did actually express concern in this case with the uh, racial makeup of the jury. And again, I, you know, some of that may be, be because of um, the pool from which the jury was drawn. But again, there there were these bats and challenges. So, yeah, this federal judge, this is uh, Judge Catherine Perry. She said she had great concerns. But the quote I saw, she said she had no choice but to follow the law. Once the defense attorneys have explained, here's my race neutral reason, does she have to buy it? Eric Banks, I'm curious, did, would she have a, a way of saying, you know what, I don't believe this is a race neutral reason. I'm going to say this doesn't hold water. Well, judges in particular, and the Honorable Judge Perry in particular, certainly has that discretion. And I know from whence I speak, because I tried a bank robbery case in front of her in December of 2019, and I raised a number of um, Batchian challenges, as you would expect ordinarily a defense attorney to do. Ultimately, the good judge is going to apply the smell test because you can always, any attorney who is worth her or his salt to be able to try a criminal defense case in federal court is going to be able to come up with some type of race slash gender neutral um, explanations, even if it's as simple as he or she did not laugh at my jokes he or she seemed disinterested. He or she did not make eye contact with me. And then ultimately the judge is going to do what he or she thinks is right under the circumstances. So let's say that Judge Perry had decided that these reasons that were given didn't pass the smell test. This is this is not what happened in this case. But say she was like, I think this is just a pretext. You're trying to get rid of, of the black jurors here. What would happen in that case, Eric? Her remedy then includes... I am not going to let you allow, use your preemptory strike for this witness, for this juror. So then that juror goes back on the panel, the one that the one side tried to get rid of. Yes. Now, in my opinion, even though I certainly agree with Bastion versus Kentucky, that is the nuclear option. And I think that it behooves the system in general if we just try not to get that far, if we collectively try to do what is right under the circumstances. But the bottom line is um, it's not so much jury selection as jury deselection. And attorneys, are, being the advocates that we are, are going to choose jurors who we think will side with us. And the paradox under these circumstances, just like in um, Minneapolis, is that the prosecutor is raising the bastion challenge usually the shoe is on the other uh, foot and it's the defense attorneys who are saying too much too many african americans are being struck for um, non-legitimate reasons but given the nature of the defendants here in st louis as well as the defendant in minneapolis the prosecutors making that argument hmm. it is interesting um bill what do you make of all of this well i think it it shows that batson you know while 
definitely a good decision 30, 35 years ago. Hasn't been as effective as, as maybe people had hoped. A lot of uh, some uh, defense lawyers, civil rights lawyers, uh, think that peremptory challenges should be rem entirely removed. Uh, I mean, there have been, there were, the Supreme Court had a case just last year or the year before involving a, a death penalty case uh, where, where the, uh, the person on death row had been tried six times and over the period of, the, of those trials over decades, uh, you know, something like 40 black jurors, all the black jurors had been struck and, uh, and, and the state was still saying they had, they had non-racial reasons for doing it. The Supreme Court didn't buy that in the end, but you know, it takes, it takes a lot of proof for the Supreme Court to, uh, you know, to say, well, you know, the circumstances show that can't be so. Uh, I mean, it's very hard for the defense lawyers to show that the racial, the, the non-racial excuse by the other side uh, is, uh, is actually valid and not just a pretext. There was so much consternation when this was announced. I think a lot of people thought, okay, with an all-white jury, is this verdict going to be treated as valid no matter what happens here? I mean, if this goes the wrong way, people are just going to chalk it up to that. Could prosecutors have appealed mid-trial, or is that not how these things work? Uh, Nicole? I don't think so. I'd have That's one I'd probably have to go back and research. But there are certain things that are appealable that are called interlocutory appeals. I don't think that's one of the issues that is appealable in an in interlocutory manner. I think that's one where you have to wait until the end of the case to be able to appeal it. But one thing, you know, one thing to know about this is because it's a federal case, a federal civil rights case, this is, they have a really high, the prosecutors have a very high burden of proof. They, they've got to prove that the, uh, the officers were willfully trying to violate the uh, uh, Hall's uh, constitutional rights. And, and so convictions under the federal civil rights law are very hard uh, to obtain, uh, and especially hard when the jury's almost all white. Hmm. Do you think the situation changes at all now due to the fact that through nothing done by the attorneys or the judge, um, there is now one black juror? Does, does that, I don't know, create eliminate the kind of opening that people were hoping for, Nicole? I mean, it's we're talking now about the court of public opinion. And so, you know, whether people will see the verdict, whether it comes down one way or another to be a valid verdict, you know, based up on the racial makeup of the jury really remains to be seen. But it is, I think, a sad state of affairs that, um, you know, when a person is sitting to be tried by a jury of their peers and there's only one peer on there that looks the way that he does. Or in the flip side here, where somebody who's a victim um, can only get one person on, on the jury that will be deciding the fate of, of his uh, perpetrators. Right, exactly. And uh, one other thing I was going to say is that because this case, and, and we're even having trouble keeping straight in our heads, I mean, because this case is the one, the situation where the prosecution has the black victim, um, the prosecutors very rarely appeal. Um, it's, it's very difficult. There's really... Um, I must say there's really a bias uh, in courts of appeals in general against prosecutors bringing appeals because, um, you know, usually defendants get the benefit of the doubt if they win their case. Um, prosecutors rarely, rarely bring appeals. Hmm. You know, one thing, even though I, I said, you know, it's a very high burden of proof and it is, 
the evidence here is is very strong. It would seem to me. I mean, you've got two police officers who were involved who have uh, who have taken guilty pleas. Uh, you know, you have the statements that were intercepted. Uh, let's whoop some a. Uh, a lot of cops getting hurt, but it's still a blast beating people that deserve it, calling the protesters animals. Remember, this was the night. This was the same night as the famous the or infamous Kettling uh, incident. Um, you know, where a whole uh, block load of protesters were were closed in and and uh, and sp and sprayed with chemicals and and uh, and arrested uh, a number of them. Mm -hmm. So. Um, this is, I think, very a very strong case. Uh, so it, it, even even with a mostly white jury and a really high burden of proof, uh, they they could get a conviction. You know, one part of this I, I wanted to to uh, touch on briefly here, and that is one of the charges. Each of the officers faces charges of deprivation of rights under color of law. But one of the officers, this is former officer Christopher Myers, faces a charge of destruction of evidence. Prosecutors say that he smashed Hall's cell phone, and he did it in particular to avoid any investigation. Now, there's an interesting text message apparently referring to this by one of the other officers who's already pled guilty in this. He said in his text, the camera thing is just ignorant. Nothing we all haven't done. And if it was a protester, it wouldn't be a problem at all. Interesting to hear that uh, perception that they can do this to a normal normal protester, can't do it to an undercover colleague. Um, but I I'm curious about how hard it's going to be to make that destruction of evidence claim stick. If they're saying that the camera was just collateral damage in the beating, can they still make that charge uh, hold? Anyone have any thoughts on that? That seems like that might be the hardest one here. Nicole? Yeah, I mean, it might be a hard charge, but I like it. I mean, look, I think, you know, and, and even add that statement, I'm shaking my head as you're reading that statement. That's horrible. I mean, that is just, I mean, that's per se destruction of damage. I, it, it may be a hard charge, but that is not something you can just do in anger and get away with it. That's evidence right there, and you can't destroy it. And we need to flip our thinking if that's something that's regularly done. I, I think if you talk to protesters, they would say, indeed, that is something that's regularly done. I'm, I'm sure the cops have a different answer to that. One of the other things that has struck me throughout the coverage of this trial is just how shockingly frank some of these text messages exchanged by officers are. They're talking about being excited to beat protesters. Um, Eric Banks, how different do you think this case would be if these officers had simply picked up the phone and had conversations with each other orally as opposed to putting all this in writing? Oh, I don't think it would be much different at all, except for how would we um, track it? How would we be privy to the phone conversations as opposed to the um, text conversations? Since I am pulling for the U.S. Attorney's Office on this one for a change, I hope that they are successful. But if I had on my former criminal defense attorney hat on, I would say, Never, ever, ever put anything in a text or put anything in the social media arena that you wouldn't want to read on the first page of um, the New York Times above the fold. There is realistically, I don't care what the law says, realistically, there is no expectation of privacy for electronic media mediums. 
Eric, do you think with this being such a high-profile case and these text messages being front and center in so much news coverage, going forward, police officers might be a whole lot more careful about what they're putting in writing? We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to discuss a number of other um, important legal matters that have been in the news this past month. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. Our guests today include Bill Freivogel, an attorney and a professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and Eric Banks, a former city councilor and state's attorney, now practicing at Banks Law, LLC. And we're also joined by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor. She's now in private practice at Gorofsky Law. So we've been talking a bit about jury selection, um, and it seems like jury trials are starting to get underway again in this region. That includes in St. Louis City. Uh, The circuit attorney recently lost their first criminal trial since the pandemic began. So trials are now up and going at it. But they're handling things in a slightly different way because, let's face it, there's still a lot of people out there who have not been vaccinated and the coronavirus is still raging. So apparently questionnaires are being sent out to jurors to fill out at home and return. And some of these jurors are expressing some concern about some of the personal questions they're being asked to answer in writing. They've been asked, who's their favorite radio host? I hope I know the answer to that question. Probably not. Um, Where do they get their news? Um, Do they support Black Lives Matter? Do they support the NAACP? Um, Is there any weirdness with asking jurors to put this in writing and send this back to the courts? Um, Eric, any thoughts on this? No, I don't think that there's any weirdness involved. Um, Keep in mind, I don't think it is a cliche that is incorrect when you say that with the exception of military service, jury service is the highest calling of a citizen, significantly more so than voting. If you don't believe that, look at how convenient voting is most of the time, as opposed to serving on a jury. What do state jurors get paid these days? $15 a day. I think federal jurors get $30 a day and they may give you a $5 meal ticket to get a a cup of coffee and a donut or something of that nature. It is truly a very, very um, invasive process. So much so that we attorneys tell jurors, the jury pool, If you have something that is really sensitive and you don't want to share it with the group, let the judge know and we'll all convene at his or her um, podium and we'll talk about it that way. Now, Mm -hmm. it's going to be on the record still, but all your fellow veneer people will not hear what you have to say in that regard. But the questions are going to be asked, whether it's in writing or verbally. Nicole? Yeah, I mean, sadly, these are just things that the attorneys for both sides need to know. I mean, they they need to know, you know, the types of biases that could be possible for the jurors that are coming in for the case. This is particularly um, 
important in examples of cases that I've done in my career, which are uh, I was when I was a prosecutor, I did, um, you know, sex assaults. And in private practice, I represent victims of sexual assault and sexual abuse. And um, so it's interesting whether a person would find it more invasive to be asked that question in court or would that person find it more invasive to be asked that question in a questionnaire where they can write it down and no one else would hear it. Now, of course, it's never asked in open court where the person would have to tell everybody in the room, the person would be able to go up in front of the judge. But I think even sometimes still that's less comfortable than being able to write it on a form. So um, in even before coronavirus, in many of my cases, a lot of these written questionnaires were sent out before trials. So hmm. although it might feel invasive, um, it's, it's necessary. And we have to find out the, the biases that potential jurors may have before a case. And yes, it's uncomfortable. But as Eric says, it's, it's, it's an and necessary evil. Nicole, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned this was happening even before the coronavirus. My understanding of this, and, and it sounds like I'm wrong here, is that they were trying to narrow the pool of people who were going to be brought into that room where you're all herded together and breathe, breathing on each other. What's going on with, with sending these out even before we had to worry about spreading COVID-19? So um, in cases that are particularly um, sensitive or in cases that are particularly um, large or um, the public really knows about them, you can ask the judge to do a written questionnaire pre-trial to try to weed out the people who would automatically um, just not be qualified in the same way that a coronavirus would affect the situation. Um, for example, um, if we wanted to do jury questionnaires because jury selection would just be incredibly tedious before, um, for example, a sex abuse case. I mean, um, like I said, unfortunately, some of these situations are so prevalent in our society, getting through a jury selection in, you know, less than a few days when you're dealing with people who have been sexually abused, um, it does often cut down the time to send out a jury questionnaire in advance. And so in a lot of those types of cases, we would ask the judge for permission to send out a jury questionnaire in advance. It's not a substitution for in-person jury selection. Um, but it does help us whittle down some of the questions that we would have to ask in person. So jury questionnaires are not a new thing. Um, using them for this purpose may be a new thing, but they're not new altogether. Hmm. Bill? I, I was a little, I agree with what, what uh, Nicole said. Um, the, uh, I, was, I was a little surprised just from reading the article, you know, on this first trial, the one that, uh, that you referred to where a person uh, was acquitted by a jury, even though there was a video showing the defendant at the at the location of the shooting. Oh, this and, is uh, again the uh, the first trial back in St. Louis. First City. trial back, yeah. yeah. The, uh, yeah so they had a video uh, putting the defendant at the scene, and they had an eyewitness. Um, so I I mean it. I, I guess it shows that your uh, juries are. You know, they're not taking, uh, I mean, they're being skeptical. 
I would say St. Louis City jury, speaking on behalf of my fellow St. Louis residents, um, people are coming in with a lot of skepticism towards law enforcement these days. Um, And actually, this next story that we're going to talk about here may explain why some of this attitude um, is building in the city. This involves more bad apples, as as they like to say, in the St. Louis City Police Department. In this past month, two veteran officers were charged with forcible rape. And those charges allege that the two officers worked together and served women strong or drug-laced drinks before assaulting them. Uh, one of these officers, uh, Lafille Lachey, apparently has at least four different victims. Um, this is just some, some terrible stuff here. And Nicole, I understand this isn't even the only case we're talking about that involves uh, police officers on the St. Louis um, on the St. Louis force who are accused of rape. It looks like there could potentially be a group of these guys who are um, potentially raping other women and potentially raping their co-workers of female um, police officers on the force, which is, again, just hor- a horrifying thing to be talking about. And, you know, obviously we've, you know, we've all heard this before, but when we're talking about sexual assault, it's about power and control. And so it's also very similar to these police brutality issues. When you're talking about power and control, it can come out in several different ways. And so police brutality is one of the ways and sexual assault is another way. So um, again, it can go hand in hand. Hmm. One side note, or one part of these charges against these two officers, um, is charges against a third officer. Now, this is a female officer. She is not accused of rape. However, uh, Sergeant Jatanya Claiborne Muldrow allegedly tried to dissuade one of the victims from reporting her abuse. And now this sergeant has been charged with tampering with a witness. This is after she allegedly told the uh, victim that the sexual assault was, quote, just a misunderstanding. She also showed up at Internal Affairs when the victim tried to file a complaint. Eric, what do you make of those charges here against this this female officer? Well, the presumption of innocence notwithstanding, the charges are beyond the pale. 99.9% of all police officers are good public servants. You described them accurately at the beginning as being bad apples. And it's incumbent for the police to drum out their bad apples because it undermines the confidence that the public has in general. So you can have 10 good police officers testifying and telling the truth, but the jury may be saddled with remembering this story and have some doubt about the veracity of the police officers. So as, as it re- relates to this uh, female sergeant, uh, she's being I, I represented by attorney Neil Bruntrager, who handles a lot of police cases um, in this area. He says that there's a real conflict here and that circuit attorney Kim Gardner should not be bringing this case. He says that uh, Sergeant Claiborne Muldrow is one of the officers who investigated circuit attorney Gardner. He says that the sergeant finished her report into an investigation of Gardner's conduct during her prosecution of former Governor Eric Greitens. And of course, some criminal charges have come out of that, not against Gardner, but against this hired hand that that was working as an investigator for her office. So she finished her report on March 12, 2020. Just five days later, she was suspended for her actions related to the sexual assault. Bill, does this timing present some problems for the circuit attorney's office? Well, it does. I think it does present some appearance problems. Um, uh, So, but um, I mean, it seems as though the, 
there, there's not a clear connection, but I think I think that it's that it's uh, and arguably it's something from which the circuit attorney's office, uh, from which Gardner should be uh, should should not be handling the matter. What, Nicole, I saw you raising your hand. Do you have? What are your thoughts? I yeah, I mean, I, one of the things that prosecutors and all, you know, public servants, judges, they're all supposed to avoid even the appearance of impropriety. And I think this has an appearance of impropriety, whether it's a direct conflict or not. I think it just doesn't look right. The other thing that I thought was um, um, interesting and in, in Frazier, sorry, I'm going to brutalize his name, um, filing was that... Uh, it looks like they missed the statute of limitations by a day. And so obviously that's an even bigger issue. So if they miss the statute of limitations, they're out. So um, conflict aside, the, the charges may just be dead in the water. Yeah, I'm curious about the statute of limitations on this. They're saying that um, this female sergeant, uh, her last contact with the alleged victim was on March 15th, 2020. And so Bruntrager says that by virtue of that, a year later, the charges expired. They didn't get around to filing them until March 16th. Is it as clear cut as that, that if you have a conversation on March 15th, that the statute of limitations would begin running the very next day? Eric, any thoughts on that? That would be the case if the charge is a misdemeanor. I don't know if this it is in this case. Yes. Okay. So. Well, um, um, let me start off by saying I disagree with the statement that a prosecutor could indict a ham sandwich if he or she wanted that type of indictment. So I don't, I don't agree with people who say stuff like that, but. I can imagine that if a prosecutor was sufficiently motivated, he or she could come up with a felony charge that would be within the statute of limitations. Mm -hmm. So there might be a way to proceed with this. I guess the question is whether this is something Circuit Attorney Gardner should take on or whether we might be looking at yet another special prosecutor, an issue that we have certainly talked about on this show. We did get an email from a listener that relates to some of the stuff we've been talking about here. And I, I want to just discuss this briefly before our break. Christopher emails, please ask the panelists about the likely defense of the officers in the St. Louis beating trial and the George Floyd case, uh, which is, of course, going on now in Minnesota. It seems like the just following orders and keeping with established procedures is the old Nuremberg defense and not really a legitimate defense in a criminal case, although it might work to some degree in a civil case. Nicole, thoughts on that? So actually, they're using different defenses in the two cases. The defenses uh, in the case, I think it's a great question. The defenses in the case in St. Louis um, I think um, they may be different for the different officers that are on trial, but um, especially for Scott Rosenblum's client, I mean, he's trying to say it's a mistaken identity and his client wasn't even really in the area um, and that it's all circumstantial evidence. Um, and so that's that's kind of the defense here in the case in St. Louis. The defense against in, in the case of George Floyd up in Minneapolis um, is a completely different defense, right? Because everybody in the entire world now has seen Derek Chauvin um, with his knee on um, on George Floyd's neck. 
Um, so, you know, they really have to grasp for a defense in that case. And what it has come down to be is a causation defense. They're trying to say in part that the knee on the neck didn't cause the death of George Floyd. They're trying to say that there may have been some other cause of death. So, you know, we can debate over the strength of that kind of defense, but it's a very different defense up there than it is in the case in St. Louis. Hmm. Bill, any, I don't any... think following order. I don't think following orders uh, would work in either place because there, there are no orders that justify uh, what happened to Hall or, or, or you know the eight and a half minutes on on uh, Floyd's neck. Okay, so this it does not sound like an effective defense, Eric Banks. If if you were on either of these cases, do you think you'd be tempted to try to to blame this on supervisors? I would be tempted to reach for any straw that I could find because that's my, jo- my job as a participant in the adversarial situation. At least one person who's listening to this program um, questions what he thinks is my ethical um, ambiguity because of me not doing any job other than my own. And this person thinks that I should not represent, should not have represented anybody unless I knew for a fact he or she was innocent. And my attitude is also, you want me to do the prosecutor's job, the judge's job, as well as the jury's job. Never in my career have I asked a client, did you do it? All I want to know is, what did the police say to you? And what did you say to the police? And from that, I tried to sow some um, gold from the hay that is given to me. And there we have a good summation of the legal philosophy right there. That is Eric Banks of Banks Law. Uh, We're also joined on our legal roundtable today by Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law and also Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. We need to take a quick break, but we'll uh, we'll come back shortly to continue this conversation. We'll talk about the case of Lamar Johnson. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. Welcome back. Our legal roundtable is in session today, and my guests include Bill Freivogel, an attorney and professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, as well as Eric Banks, who's practicing at Banks Law, LLC, and Nicole Gorofsky, a former prosecutor who's now in private practice at Gorofsky Law. Now, we've talked a lot about the criminal justice system today, and we're going to have to talk about it a little bit more. There is just so much in the news right now, um, and some cases with some really interesting legal issues here. One of them involves a man named Lamar. Johnson. Now, we've talked about this one on our show a few times by now. This is a St. Louis man who's been doing some long time for murder. Circuit attorney Kim Gardner says he is not guilty. 
but she has been thwarted in her efforts to get a new trial. Most recently, within this last month, the Missouri Supreme Court weighed in. They did not look at the merits of the case, but they said Missouri law doesn't allow a prosecutor to do what Kim Gardner sought to do here. And so there's a real question of what comes next for Lamar Johnson. Um, And if Kim Gardner can't do this, does the Missouri law need to be changed? Nicole, let's hear your thoughts on this one. Yeah, this is such an interesting issue because it it goes great right after what Eric Banks just said, because Eric said as a defense attorney, his job is to represent that defendant. He's hired by that defendant. A prosecutor's job is kind of different. A prosecutor's job, they represent the state, but not at all costs. A prosecutor's job is to seek justice. And so if justice says that a person is innocent, then they're not supposed to, you know, seek a conviction at all costs. So um, I'm a little uncomfortable with Eric Schmidt's position on this case. And in fact, early in my career, when I was at the attorney general's office, um, gosh, I'm thinking like 2002, this exact issue came up and it came up in a habeas petition just like this. And um uh, a uh, assistant attorney general took the position that a habeas petition was not going to be the right time for uh, a, a person to claim actual innocence. And there was nothing that a prosecutor could do to help that that defendant out. And actually, the Missouri Supreme Court at that time that actually included Judge Stith, I, I believe that was right around the time she came on the court and it, it included Judge Wolf and Judge Price. Those are all people who are still local in our St. Louis area um, came down pretty hard on the attorney general's office and said actual innocence is something that can come up at any time. And the state has a responsibility to seek justice for somebody regardless. It's we're not like defense attorneys. Prosecutors are not like defense attorneys. They don't represent um, someone at all costs. Hmm. So um, it's interesting that uh, Attorney General Schmidt is is going backwards again and taking that position again um, for something that the office kind of got, for lack of a better word, smacked down for years ago. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happened. I mean, again, it's a prosecutor's job to do justice, not to you know blindly pick a side and stick with it. And I've got to ask you about this habeas question. Those of us who are non-lawyers, we find ourselves saying, what is a habeas petition? And and just to give people a little context, um, what Kim Gardner was doing here was trying to avoid Lamar Johnson having to file a habeas petition. Now the justices are saying, okay, you might have to go this route because we're saying the prosecutor can't lead the ball on this. Nicole, walk us through this. What exactly is a habeas petition? And and what would be Eric Schmidt's role here um, if he's doing, if, if he's practicing the law the way you're suggesting he should practice it. So the attorney general's office is really responsible for all things that happen in felony convictions in this state post-trial. So everything that happens after, unless it's a retrial, of course. So anything from appeal to habeas petitions, which are all post-conviction happenings, um, those all happen in the attorney general's office with few exceptions that are probably too minute to go into here. So um, what happens is you get everyone gets an appeal as of right. Every defendant gets an appeal as of right. And then if they do not win that appeal, they get what's called a habeas petition. And they can file that habeas petition in federal court saying, look, I didn't get X, Y or Z 
constitutional right met. And so when they do that, there can be the the federal court can hold a hearing. And part of what Kim Gardner was saying here is, look, just hold a hearing. Just let us hold the evidentiary hearing. He's claiming actual innocence. Just let us hold the hearing and um, put out all the evidence and let's just see where it goes. And um, Schmidt's office is is basically saying, no, we're not going to advocate for that. We're going to fight against a hearing. And that's that. So, um, you know, it's if if someone's been claiming actual innocence all throughout, like I said, this came up in the Missouri Supreme Court years ago. That That's, you know, you kind of got to let them do it. Bill Freivogel, would a federal judge have the right to grant this evidentiary hearing that Lamar Johnson is desperate to get here, even with Eric Schmidt fighting it? Why Why is this on Eric Schmidt and everybody's acting like he's the bad guy here? Well, I think he is the bad guy. But yes, a federal judge would be uh, would have uh, the power to grant the hearing and to disagree with with Eric Schmidt. I mean, the Missouri Supreme Court, in their opinion in the Lamar Johnson case, was very clear. They had a footnote, footnote eight of the majority opinion said, you know, basically we all agree that that this habeas corpus is the way to go. And then Ju- uh, Justice Stith and her concurrence made very clear that Eric Schmidt's view of a prosecutor's role was wrong, that it, that it was counter to what the, the U.S. Supreme Court has said the prosecutor's role is, you know, as Nicole said, it's not just, you know, keep somebody behind bars no matter what, it's to do justice. And the Supreme Court has been very clear about that. And the Missouri Supreme Court and Justice Stiss um, uh, uh, concurrence was very clear about that. So does Eric Schmidt have to do what he says he has to do? No. I guess where I find myself confused on this is if the path is so clear that this should have been a habeas petition, then why did they go the route they originally went and Kim Gardner trying to do this request for a new trial, which the court is saying, yeah, there's no law in Missouri that that says you can go this route. Bill, any thoughts on that? Well, I think maybe they thought it would be easier. I mean, habeas habeas isn't easy to win. So I think, and you know, I, uh, so I, I think that's what Kim Gardner was thinking, but then, you know, the Missouri Supreme court just said too much time has passed. Can't the, the law just doesn't, doesn't contemplate, uh, as taking this action after so many years have passed, you know, 20 plus years. Something else the Supreme Court said is that perhaps there should be a Missouri law that would allow a prosecutor yeah. to do what Kim Gardner's trying to do. Eric, do you think that's something that, that Missouri needs to get on here? Yes, I do. I believe that the more arrows we can have in our quiver to correct travesties like this one, we need to have. Now, it may not do a whole lot um, regarding what's happened in the past. I'm not sure if such a law could or would be retroactive, but it might stop things like this from occurring in the future. So let's talk about another travesty from the past. Um, This was a wrongful conviction that came out of St. Charles County. A lot of people have heard of the case of Jonathan Irons, mainly because he is married to WNBA star Maya Moore, and she decided to take a couple years off her from her basketball playing career to try to help him. Well, that has actually gone really well. Um, His conviction has now been overturned. Eric Schmidt, the attorney general who we were just talking about, filed appeals last year to try to prevent his release. The Missouri Supreme Court denied 
hide that. Um, and St. Charles County prosecuting attorney Tim Lomar has declined to retry Irons. He uh, pinpointed some factors where he said his decision was relatively easy, that this was mishandled back when Jonathan Irons was a teen. Well, now Jonathan Irons is suing for damage. Eric, what would it take for him to have a successful claim civilly um, to get some recompense for what he suffered all those years in prison? A lot of prayer and a lot of work. It's, it's going, going to come down to, to that. Be, yes. Um, I think that as often as not, the legislatures will make a um, special um, appropriation to try to right the wrong a little bit. But absent that in a regular lawsuit, I think that unfortunately he would be hard pressed to get past sovereign immunity. Wow. Um, and that's you know, even in a is... case where here he's he's been let out, Nicole. Well, they literally have to show malice. So and and so that and that's what the elements of the offense say. They have to show malice on the part of the prosecutor that um, brought the case in the first place. And so it so, can't just be a lazy prosecutor or a kind of like prosecutor half doing their job. The prosecutor has to say, I want to go get this teen, Jonathan Irons, and lock him up. Correct. Now, there's some evidence that they may, that may exist here, but they are going to have to be able to prove it in front of a jury. Hmm. Bill, thoughts on this one? There, there's some blatant mis police misconduct in this case. Uh, and I, so I think, you know, I think there is a there's a lawsuit that uh, that, that has some legs uh, to it. I mean, you had the the detective who who um, got the supposed conf confession from Irons. I believe he's no longer alive, but who said, who, who didn't take any notes, didn't have any witnesses. So that's the way he liked to do it. Um, uh, of course, Iron City didn't, didn't say what the detective had to say. And then even, even to a certain extent, more blatant was this testimony of Detective Lutkenhaus concerning fingerprints. Uh, I mean, I'll just read you part of the, the court opinion here. Uh, it's plain Given the information on undisclosed fingerprint report that Detective Lukenhaus's direct testimony attributing all the identifiable fingerprints to the victim was not truthful. And they put was not truthful in boldface. I mean, he lied. So could that be yeah. malice, Bill? I, I would sure would seem like it has the intent necessary for malice to me. There's also this lineup where um, Iron's picture was significantly larger than the others. So, like I said, there's some evidence that that there's there may be able to prove malice here. Hmm. Yeah. Well, this will be one. Like we, Sorry. I was just going to say, it seems like we have an awful lot of these few bad apples. <laughs> in our final couple minutes here today, um, there is now legislation in at least a dozen states that seeks to nullify any new restrictions, such as ammunition limits or a ban on certain types of weapons that would take away people's Second Amendment rights to bear arms. This includes Missouri. Bill, is this possibly something that could pass constitutional muster that Missouri could, could say, hey, feds, your laws do not apply here? Uh, I, I don't think it, that these laws will, will pass constitutional muster. We do have a more conservative Supreme Court and a Supreme Court that's uh, you know pays attention to states' rights. But I mean, this is this is basically going back to the whole era of nullification. I mean, nullification was that whole period before the Civil War when the when the South was trying to nullify federal laws and say it's up to the states to decide. Uh, the Civil War decided that. 
they, you can't, you, they can't, they can't do this to say that, you know, we're, we're not going to enforce federal firearms laws. That's not constitutional. Nicole, in our final minute here, is this something that is as clear cut as, as Bill Freivogel is hoping? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, I'd love to be the voice of dissent, but no, states cannot refuse to enforce, in fact, criminalize enforcing federal laws. It just doesn't work that way. Well, I'm glad there's something we have consensus on. Eric Banks, can we make this three for three, that that states just can't criminalize uh, the feds here? Absolutely not. If you have three panelists and they always agree with each other, you have too many, you have two, too many panelists. So I think that the states could pass something like this. I think that um, it's, I think they can. And I hope as a citizen that I'm wrong, but as a um, attorney, I think they can. Well, Eric, thank you for making the case that we need to continue to have a legal roundtable and not just a one-on-one legal chat, because I would not enjoy that nearly as much as gathering with you fine folk. Um, Eric Banks of Banks Law LLC, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Nicole Garofsky of Garofsky Law, thank you. Thanks for having me. And Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, thank you. Thanks. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.